Amen. You guys can take your Bibles and open them up to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. I don't know about you, but it's been a real privilege for me to be working through the book of Joshua. We love books like this, don't we? We love books where God's power is put on display time and time again, and we get to see God's power like this. In fact, if we were to look at the whole Old Testament, often uh, we gravitate to the stories where God's power is put on display in these marvelous ways. In the book of Joshua, we might think about the walls of Jericho when uh, through God's mighty power, those walls came crumbling down. We might think of David and Goliath when God works through this little child or a story like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea where miraculously God delivers his people by splitting the sea, doing these amazing and astounding things. But these last few weeks, we've started to read about Israel's conquest in the land. And what God is doing as he's bringing Israel through the land and fulfilling the promise that he had given them to give them the land, as he's doing that, God is putting himself on display to the nations in a bit of a different way. See, while God's power is displayed greatly in his deliverance of his people, as we read through the Bible, we also need to wrap our minds around the fact that God's power is often displayed through judgment. And it doesn't take us long to begin reading through the Bible. Maybe we start in Genesis to see that often God is displaying his power through his wrath and judgment of the nations. And so the question for us then is, how are we to read these stories? How are we to understand God's judgment? How are we to understand the wrath of God being poured out on people? And perhaps there's many ways we do this. Maybe one way we do it is just by avoiding it, pretending like God's wrath, pretending like God's judgment just isn't there. There might be many ways we do this. Maybe we look at stories in the Bible and and we just focus on other elements. Stories like Noah and the ark where God is pouring out his judgment on the whole entire world and we instead focus on the animals. We focus on the boat. We might avoid God's wrath. Another way we might do it is by excusing God's wrath. And so I've heard people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath, but the God of a New Testament is a God of love. We make excuses for uh, when God is pouring out his judgment on people. But I want to propose to you this morning something different. That instead of avoiding it, instead of excusing it, we acknowledge it. And I want you to see this morning is that when we acknowledge God's judgment and we respond properly to God's judgment, we can find God's grace. And so I want you to take these moments as we study Joshua 9 together this morning. I want you to see God's judgment and see how the people respond to God's judgment and ultimately find God's grace. See, we're witnessing another display of God's glorious character in this chapter. And we're not just finding God on a bad day. We're finding that when we respond rightly to God's judgment, we can find his grace. Now let's read Joshua chapter 9 together in its entirety. Joshua 9 chapter chapter 9 verse 1 begins like this. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country 
and then the lowland all along the coast of the Great Sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and made wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hands for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And leaders of the congregation swore to them. Verse 16, at the end of the three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sapphira, Beeroth, Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, to all the congregation. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to, to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do it to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill him. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Now we've been working through the book of Joshua together and we've seen in Joshua that God is sending Israel on a mission to fulfill his promise as Israel inherits the land of Canaan. 
And as we've walked with Israel through this journey, we've seen that Israel has had high highs and low lows. We saw them have high highs at places like the walls of Jericho, where they won that battle in a magnificent manner. We saw last week the lowest of lows, where because of their sin, they suffered defeat. Now, as God continues to lead his people through Canaan, he is teaching us this morning how we might find his grace as he displays his judgment. And the first thing I want you to see this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. I want you to see that I will find God's grace when I properly pursue him. I'll find God's grace when I properly pursue him. Now, in chapter 9, verse 1, we read that Israel's conquest in Canaan is becoming famous. On the front of every newspaper would be this headline, Israel's coming. And so the kings of these four major cities decide that something needs to be done. Israel's winning victory after victory as it attempts to control all of Canaan. And these kings see Israel coming. Now what's happening here is is Israel is executing the judgment of God on these nations. We saw that in that the Gibeonites saw what Israel was doing and understood that God had promised them that they would win uh, Canaan, that they would win victory after victory, and they understood that this judgment was coming towards them. And so as we see God's judgment coming through the nation of Israel, we also see people responding to it. I want you to see in uh, in the book of Joshua three improper responses to God's judgment. Three ways that when we see the judgment of God, when we see the wrath of God in scripture or in our lives, we might uh, improperly respond to God's wrath and judgment. First, I want you to turn back a few pages. Look at Joshua chapter five, verse one. See, notice this is not the first time that the kings of the nations have uh, taken notice of Israel. In Joshua chapter five, verse one, it says this, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, listen to this, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. See, these kings in 5.1, they saw Joshua and they saw his armies and they realized there was, that there was nothing they could do. And so their response to God's judgment was a response of fleeing. So the first improper re- response we might have to God's judgment is the response of fleeing. I remember it was five or six years ago. My wife and I went on a hike at a popular trail nearby and we were hiking. It was going great. And we turned this corner and we were filled with awe as we saw these majestic turkeys, these wild turkeys, four or five of them. But our awe soon turned to terror as these turkeys started to charge us. Now I live by a principle in my life. And the principle is this, that if you are attacked by something in the wild, the only thing you need to do is run faster than the person you came with. So I decided that as these turkeys came with us and they didn't seem like they were friendly, I felt like we were about to face the judgment of four or five wild turkeys. I turned and I fled. Now, since then, almost weekly, I have been reminded by my wife that fleeing is not always the best option. My wife tells that story and I think it's kind of blown up through the years. But in that story, I've already made it 30 feet by the time the turkeys start 
running. I'm already up a tree, and she is like Braveheart to these turkeys, fighting these turkeys, defending us from these wild turkeys. And I learned that morning that fleeing is not always the right response. And I've learned every week since then. See, maybe you're here, and this would, res- this would describe your relationship to God. Maybe even this morning you got here or you started watching online and you didn't want to do it. You've been fleeing God your entire life. You know that there's a penalty of sin for sin. You know that there is judgment for sinners. And as you think about God's judgment and wrath, you realize that it is coming for you. And so you're doing everything you can because you don't believe there's a way out of your sin and it is haunting you. So you run. Maybe you're fleeing boldly like that, but maybe there's another way you might be fleeing God, and that's through ignorance. In fact, this is the place I think most people are. When I talk to people about Christ, I find that often they're fleeing God by just ignoring God. And so it's not that you don't, it's not just that you don't know God, it's that you don't know God and you don't care to know him. And so maybe you're here this morning and it's been after, you know, your neighbor has invited you time after time, but you're just not interested in knowing more because perhaps if you know more, that'll have to change the way that you live. And so you're fleeing God through ignorance. Maybe your statement is this, what I don't know can't hurt me. Church, have you ever heard that? You ever heard someone say, well, what they don't know can't hurt them? Well, I am here this morning to declare that that is false. What you don't know can hurt hurt you. If we were in this field and there is a bus coming 80 kilometers uh, an hour through this field, and I told you there's a bus, everyone get out of the way, and you chose to believe, well, what I don't know can't hurt you, I want to tell you that it would hurt you. And listen to me, friend, if you don't know God, if you have been fleeing God, can I urge you this morning to press into him? Can I urge you this morning to at least know enough about who Jesus Christ is, know enough about God, know enough about his word to at the very least reject him. Don't ignore him. Don't flee him. Press into the knowledge of him. See, the first improper response we might have is to to be fleeing God's judgment. But in chapter 9, verse one, the kings choose not to flee, but rather the kings are fighting God's judgment. And so look what it says in Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, look what they did. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. See, these kings had seen Israel's weakness. In chapter 7 and 8, they had been defeated. They had suffered loss. And so these kings, believing that Israel is now at a weak spot, decide that they can oppose the plan and mission of God. Decide that they can fight against the work that God is doing. Now, Christians, you need to hear this this morning, that it is possible for you to fight against the work that God is doing. When God is working, In our midst, when God is working in us, it can be very possible that we fight against the work that he's doing. Maybe it's by ignoring sin that he keeps convicting you about. Your conscience keeps getting pricked, but you just keep ignoring it. You never do anything about that sin, and you're fighting God's work. Maybe it's refusing to serve in that ministry that you know that you're gifted, or you know that you're equipped, or you know that you're able to serve in. 
Maybe it's by not allowing other Christians to speak tr the truth and love into your life. You know, by all these things and by many more, we can fight the work that God is doing in our life. And that is an improper response to God. The last improper response is, that we see in this, in chapter 9 of Joshua, is seen in the Gibeonites. See, they see Israel coming, and they see the judgment of God coming through Israel, and they decide that perhaps they can escape it by faking it. And so in Joshua chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, we read that they made up this masterful plan. Uh, Joshua calls a, a cunning plan. It's deceit. It's a lie. And the, they plan, the plan is this, to make it look like they came from afar. And so they gather up all these fake provisions. They, they, they dry out and make bread crumbly until it's moldy. They make it look like their clothes are tattered. They make it look like their sandals... Uh, experience the wear of traveling a great distance. They make themselves look like foreigners. Here's the problem, they're not. In fact, Gibeon is only seven miles away from where Israel is at the end of chapter eight. See, it's possible to see God's judgment against his enemies and to think that you can trick God into friendship. And just as the Gibeonites decided to fake it until they make it, there are many, both Christian and unbeliever, who, who uh, fake it with God. See, we often lack the authenticity that a real relationship with God requires. And so we put on this fake faith with this fake spirituality. And there are many ways we do this, but one of the ways that I find especially relevant uh, in this season of, of life of following Christ is by riding on the coattails of previous victories. As we look at our relationship with God, we constantly think that we're good with God because we look back and there was a time where we followed God faithfully. There was a time where maybe we were so passionate about evangelism. Maybe we even did a missions trip. And now as we think about our relationship with God, we think everything is good now, even though there's this sin in my life, even though I'm not really disciplined, everything is good because I'm an evangelist. Everything is good because I'm a missionary. And when it comes to your relationship with God, you're always looking back to the glory days and pretending like those days are still alive. And church, what God is showing us this morning is that you cannot fake your way into a relationship with him. He knows all things and he will expose your faking. See, this is what we're being taught by Joshua that God must properly be pursued. Now here is the astounding reality. See, the Gibeonites, they thought they had to deceive their way into the kingdom. The kings, they thought they had to either fight God or to flee from God. But we know through Jesus Christ that the way to pursue God has been made easy for us. See, Jesus Christ, he came to us. He came to declare the way that you can pursue God. And his, his message was simple. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And you won't have to fake it. You won't have to fight God. You won't have to flee. Instead, you will find God. See, when you seek God, he will be found by you. See, if I want to find God's grace... I must properly pursue him. But the second thing I want you to see from Joshua chapter nine is that I will find God's grace when I continually consult him. I'll find God's grace when I continually consult him. 
Now in these next verses, we see Joshua confronted by the Gibeonites. So notice how they come to him in Joshua chapter 9, verse 6. It says, And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now first in this verse, we see the lie. And the lie, we've already talked about it, it's that we've come, they say we've come from a distant country, but we know that not to be true. The Gibeonites are trying to deceive Joshua and Israel. And so they say we've come from a distant country, even though they're only seven miles away, even though in three days' time, Israel will find the people of Gibeon. See, the Gibeonites understood this, but Joshua did not because the Gibeonites came to deceive. Next, we see the purpose of their lie. They're coming so that Joshua might make a covenant with them. See, this is the truth about lying, isn't it? We always lie because we think that lying is going to put us in a better situation than telling the truth is. And so the Gibeonites come to Joshua and they say, if we just lie, if we just convince him that we're from far away, then he will make a covenant with us because he doesn't really care about us. Because we're not in the land of Canaan. We're not really relevant to the promises of God. And so they lie. They make Joshua promise that Israel will spare them and then hold Israel to that covenant when they discover in a few short days that they aren't, in fact, distant from them. They're actually their neighbors. Now Joshua, he rightly responds with mistrust here. But the Gibeonites, their deception is very clever. This isn't like toddler level lying. When, the, you know, when your kid comes to you and you say, did you eat the cookie from the cookie jar? And as they have chocolate smeared all over their face, they're saying, no, no, it wasn't me. I never did that. This is expert level lying. And so they have a story and they can back it up. They brought clothes, they brought provisions, they brought wineskins, wine and they also brought a backstory. See, the reason that the Gibeonites said that they come is because, sorry, the actual reason that the Gibeonites came is because they saw what happened in Canaan. They saw what happened at Jericho, and they saw what happened at Ai, and they realized that God was coming their way. But when the Gibeonites come, they don't mention anything about the victories in Canaan. They go all the way to the victories that Israel had experienced before Canaan. See, this is like talking about the Stanley Cup winners, but not talking about the playoffs. They're just talking about the regular season. And that's one of the ways that they came to deceive Joshua. See, we don't care what God's doing in Canaan. We care about those previous victories. See, they're soothing Joshua, making, making Joshua believe that the Gibeonites are not a threat to God's mission. And so they continue to develop the story. And in verses 12 and 13, we see that they, they say that the officials sent them and they present the evidence. Look, look at this bread. It's moldy. Look at our clothes, they're tattered. Look at our wineskins, they're burst. On verse 14, the men look at the provisions. They take the provisions, and we can trust that the reason they take them is because they're inspecting them. I don't know about you, but if a bunch of strangers come and they say, hey, look how dirty my clothes are, you should take them. I'm not just going to take them for no reason. If a stranger comes up and hands me moldy and crusty bread, I'm not going to take it for no reason. Joshua takes the provisions so that he can inspect them. And with his human eyes and his human perception, he wants to be able to tell if the Gibeonites are telling the truth or not. But look at the problem in verse 14. In the end of verse 14, look what it says. 
See, Joshua took the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. See, Joshua never consulted the Lord. The problem was that he was making judgments in his own wisdom, with his own discretion, to the best of his human ability. And he was doing this when all along there was a higher, not, not only higher, the highest wisdom available to him. Church, you see the application for our lives here? The application is that we find God's grace when we cons- constantly, continually consult him. And the application is also that we lead ourselves astray and we lead ourselves into sin and we lead ourselves into foolishness when we fail to consult the Lord. And so it's possible when it comes to decisions in your life, instead of having your ears to the Lord, you have your eyes to the world. That you're trying to make decisions to the best of your wisdom when God is beside you and he's screaming, listen to me, consult me, follow my way, walk on my path. See, this is how God wants us to live in constant consultation with him. Even when things look right to our human eyes, he wants our ears pointed to him, listening to him, consulting him as we make decisions for his glory. See, God loves us to be dependent and leads us in wisdom and life when we are. God longs to hear his children. This is why I love the hymn that many of you are familiar with that says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. But listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Church, what peace are you forfeiting by not consulting God? Church, what pain are you bearing by not consulting God? Well, then here's the question. What should have Joshua done? What should he have done? In other words, how do we consult the Lord? This seems like an easy question, but the reality is that when you look at the church as a whole, there are many who never consult the Lord like Joshua did, and there are even church divisions about how we are to consult the Lord. One of the greatest divisions in the evangelical church is how do we consult God for his wisdom? Do we do what feels right? Do we follow our gut? Do we wait to hear his audible voice speaking to us? Well, scripture shows us three tools, three tools that we have to consult God constantly. And the first tool is this, scripture. See, we cannot consult God if we are not turning to his book. We turn to his instruction to listen to his ways to consult him. Isn't this true? That when something breaks in our house, we turn to the instruction manual shows us, the, well, it's supposed to be true, but men, we often like to do it our own way, don't we? I can figure this out myself. But the wise way, the way to remove yourself from the pain of doing it wrong is to look to the instruction manual. And God has given us this book to instruct us. He says it's a lamp to our feet. It answers the question how we are to live, but it doesn't only do that. See what, what happens when you read the, the book on a regular basis, God begins to shape your desires. He begins to change 
what you want. So that no longer do you want the things of the world. God's shaping your desires so that the things you want are the things that God wants. And if we are going to consult the Lord, we need our desires to be shaped by him. So that no longer are we acting for our own glory, but we're acting for his. See, the first tool we have to consult God constantly is scripture. The second tool is counsel. So God has placed you in a church. Many of you, he's placed you in a small group or a group of believers. And the intention is that there are people who are speaking the truth in love to you. You need this. Let me say this again. You need counsel. You cannot survive without other people speaking the truth and love into your life. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're an elder, whether you're a small group leader, whether you are the leader of your house, you need people speaking the truth and love into your life. You were created to live by this. And I'm convinced that God has made it so that we can't see into our own lives as well as we can see into other people's lives so that we have to consult other people for wisdom. See, the writer of Proverbs says, the abundance of counselors, there is victory. And God has placed people in your life who know you, who care for you, and who want to see you excel to the glory of God. And so church, lean into them. And if you're not if you don't have a group of believers around you who are willing to do that, find them. Join a small group. Start a Bible study. Find people that are pouring and speaking truth into your life so that you can consult God through their counsel. The third thing that we have, the third tool that we have is prayer. We have scripture, we have counsel, we have prayer, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the path forward for us isn't often clear is because we do not turn to the Lord in prayer. We find great clarity when we are dependent. In our most desperate times, often we will find the most clarity. And so in times of uncertainty, God calls us to consult him through prayer. Now, the third thing I want you to see that, that God's teaching us in Joshua 9 is that I'll find God's grace when I faithfully follow him. I'll find God's grace when I faithfully follow him. Now, the Gibeonites have left and the mission of Israel moves forward. Israel's on conquest at this point. But in verse 16, they, they come to realize what had happened. And so look what happens in chapter 9, verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. Take a moment to imagine what this news would be like for Israel. Just feel it for a second, okay? You know that you're on a mission to take all the land, land of Canaan. And in Joshua chapter 6, you experienced such a great victory. You wondered if it's all going to be like this, just amazing victory after amazing victory. But then in chapter 7, you experienced defeat when your sinfulness got in the way of God's plan. And now you stand here again, and your leaders have dropped the ball. See, you were supposed to go through all of Canaan defeating all of the people of Canaan so that you can inherit the land. But now you come to Gibeon and you realize that you can't execute God's plan. The mission of God has come to a halt because Joshua did not consult the Lord. So as the people of God set out and they come to realize what has happened, look what they do in verse 18. It says the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then listen to this. All, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. 
the Israelites were murmuring against the leaders. This is a common human response to people's failure, isn't it? Kids, let me talk to you for a second. Kids, can I get your attention? Do any of you ever murmur? You're saying, what's murmuring? Well, do any of you ever complain? Put your hand up if you've ever complained in your life. Okay, I see some honest kids. I see some parents forcing their kids' hands up in the air. And I see some kids who, kids' ministry is working really well for them. They've completely defeated the sin of complaining in their lives. And that's amazing. I'm really glad for that. The reality is, is that the, the human condition is to often complain. And so the Israelites are here and they're murmuring against the leaders. Now, this isn't the first time Israel has complained. As we read through Israel walking through, this, through the wilderness, it's almost every chapter that they're complaining about God, or about God or the leaders of Israel. But here is one of the few times in scripture that Israel is actually justified in their complaining against the leadership. See, the the leaders of Israel had not done what leaders are supposed to do. What are we to expect from the leaders of God's people? Well, we're to expect that as the leaders help us to follow God, we're to expect that the leaders faithfully follow God themselves. See, God's leaders are supposed to lead God's people God's way. That's a simple principle that boils down leadership for us. In fact, I think the role of a leader is summarized well by 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, where the, the leaders of Israel face a great enemy, but they declare this, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. See, a great leader, even though they don't always have the answer, even though they don't always know the path forward, their eyes are on the Lord. They've committed to faithfully follow God. This is instructive for those of you who lead. Whether you're an elder a small group leader in charge of a ministry, providing leadership in your home, your main responsibility is to seek God's face, is to seek God's grace yourself so that you can lead others to it. And leader, listen to me. You cannot lead others to where you will not go yourself. If you're not faithfully following God yourself, you can't lead others to faithfully follow God. And yet, in leadership, it is so easy to take our eyes off of God and set them on on what the world thinks will work. You need to know that I experience this constantly in my ministry. Here at the church, I direct the youth ministries. And it, at times, is very difficult to faithfully lead a youth ministry because all the time you're leading it, when you're meeting with sometimes with parents, sometimes with other leaders, what you're hearing from the world is constantly that what youth need is to be entertained. Just do whatever you can to keep them in. Do whatever. This is what's going to make a profitable youth ministry. This is what will work. Do this and then lead an event like this and then have a retreat like this. And I'm looking to God's word constantly and it's not giving me any category for youth. In fact, the only category that the, the scriptures give me is unbeliever and believer. And there are a lot of things that scripture says that believers need. And so constantly I'm looking to scripture and I'm seeing what the Bible says the believers need from their small groups, from their churches. And I'm providing this for youth, trying my hardest with the leaders to do that, asking for the Spirit's help. And yet constantly you hear this message, they need to be entertained. You need to keep them in. And that's just one example from youth. But each of us have that example of ways that we're constantly pulled to live that are not the Lord's. God is calling us to faithfully follow him. When the world says this is what you want, 
we look to God who says, this is what you need. Now, church, this is also a good opportunity for us to praise God for our leadership. I'm so thankful that the leadership here at Durham have their eyes set on the Lord. And me and my wife, Amber, have been here for eight years, seven years now. And we are constantly just pinching ourselves, thankful. I can't believe that God has brought us here because we love the leadership here so much. And we see them constantly proving that their eyes aren't set on the world, that their eyes are set on the Lord. And our hearts are constantly rejoicing in them and church. This is a good time for us to praise God in our hearts for the leaders that he has given us. This is a good day to commit to praying for them, to shoot them an email and thank them for their years of service, serving us and leading us in the way that, they, they, in the way that God says. I want you to notice something important here. Yes, Joshua failed by following his own human wisdom, but notice what Joshua does. Look what it says in verses 19 to 21. After the people have complained, it says, All the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And so the leaders said to them, Let them live. See, after failing to consult the Lord, Joshua does what is right. He keeps his vow to the Gibeonite people. Even when the Israelites were hungry to see God's justice and wrath poured out on these people, Joshua does what is right by keeping the vow. He does what scripture tells him to do by sticking to his word. See, Joshua faithfully follows God. To be faithful is to be consistent, consistent in doing what is right. Yet it's possible in our lives that when one thing goes wrong, our lives entirely unravel. Are any of you like this? I think we're all like this in some way. Maybe we experience it more so, uh, more uh, vividly in the diets that we often try to follow. You ever commit to a diet? Maybe it's January 1st. You're saying, I'm going to do this keto thing. Well, January 3rd comes along. You go to the office and there's an office party and there's Timbits and you say, well, just one Timbit's not going to hurt. And so you eat one Timbit. But then you think, well, I mean, three is a serving, right? So I'll just have three. And you eat three. And on the way home, you're like, oh, man, those Timbits are good. I'm going to stop and get 20 for myself before I get home. I don't want to share these with the kids. And maybe that's a bit drastic, but that's often how it happens, isn't it? One thing goes wrong, and it leads to many things going wrong. Our life unravels, but God is calling us to faithfully follow him in a way that when something goes wrong, instead of allowing our lives to unravel, instead we turn to him in repentance and we do what is right. Maybe you come here this morning and you find that you've been walking in disobedience. You find yourself in this, in this kind of moment where your life has unraveled. You look to the past week, and rather than finding God's grace, you find that you've been opposing God's grace. And I want you to see God's grace right here and right now for you. Despite your failure, he is calling you to repentance. When you turn to God in repentance, his arms are always open for you. And so listen, in this moment, however far you feel from the Lord, if you seek the Lord, you will find the Lord. 
If you're in Christ, you're never too far to be restored. In every moment, even in this moment, he is providing you a way of escape. He's giving you forgiveness and a new power to faithfully follow him, which leads us to our last point. I'll find God's grace when I selflessly serve. Now notice the Gibeonites are spared from God's judgment through their action. In verses 22 to 27, we see that Joshua is bringing them into the nation of Israel. And though they're cursed with menial tasks for the rest of their duration, they are saved from destruction. Now this brings up an important question for us to answer. See, the Gibeonites, they sought God the wrong way. Yet they received salvation from the coming wrath. In fact, the Gibeonites would serve in the, at the temple as woodcutters and water drawers. At the very presence of God, the Gibeonites would serve for years to come. Does that mean that it doesn't matter how you seek God? Does that mean that actually you can deceive your way into God's kingdom? Does that mean that as long as you believe that judgment's coming, that you'll be saved from it? Answer is no. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to seek the Lord. And I need you to know that this text is not about justification. This text is not about how you can be saved. This is not the manual for you to how to get right with God. But it shows us something really important about God. It shows us first that he's gracious. See, through Joshua... God extends grace to an enemy nation. This sounds familiar to us, doesn't it, church? See, through the second Joshua, Jesus Christ himself, God has extended grace to an enemy nation. And Jesus Christ came with an, a message for his enemies that you, if you repent and are baptized, you will find friendship with God. You will be invited into the family of God. You will join the people of God and experience the uh, fulfilled promises of God and experience the victories of God. See, God has not only extended his grace to Gibeon, God has extended his grace to you. And through Jesus Christ, you can find God's grace. But not only does God show us that he's gracious, he also shows us that he's faithful. See, the Gibeonites had sinned. They had tried to deceive their way into the kingdom. But Joshua had vowed to them. Joshua had vowed that God's judgment would not be poured out on them. And listen, Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in what Christ has done on the cross to die for your sins and to be raised with your new life, you need to know that you, uh, he has made a vow to you. And he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit to say that I am bringing you to eternity. Jesus has vowed to us that we're going to make it. That because of what he did, that because of his faithfulness, because of his integrity, because of his vow to us, we will find eternal life. And listen, by his grace, by his faithfulness, God is now allowing us to do this, to selflessly serve him. Isn't it amazing that the Gibeonites are saved and then they're given a task? They are given a task. They are given work to do. They are to be woodcutters and water drawers. And church, you need to hear this too, that you are saved and that God's grace to you is that he has given you a task to follow him and to follow his commands. And this, this task, it isn't to be a burden, 
but it's a funnel by which he pours his grace into your life. That you get to be used by God. And so church, when we want to find God's grace, then we commit ourselves to selfless service. We ask ourselves at the beginning of each day, how will I serve not myself today? How will I serve others for the glory of God today? And what you find is when you do that, when you selflessly serve, when you take your eyes off yourself, when you stop being such a navel gazer and you, you point your eyes to the glory of God and work for the glory of Christ, you find grace poured into your life. God promises he gives grace to those who selflessly serve. Church, this is our opportunity this morning to find God's grace. God is working in us, around us, and through us. And he's asking us to respond rightly to the work that he is doing to find his grace. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you.